Loved ones, before I get started, um, if we could pray for something else that's weighing heavily on my heart right now, and it's the, what's going on in Israel. Um, so I'd like to, to lift that up too, because this is, this is the biggest attack in, in 50 years. And um, I mean, there are corpses all over the street, young women taken hostage for bad purposes. And, um, and so, yeah, so if we could just pray one more time really quickly for, for Israel. God, we just come before you. We know that you are the just God of the universe, and we know, Lord, that this kind of pure wickedness will not go unpunished. So we pray, Lord, that you would be with the IDF and that, um, as in the days of old, the sword of Gideon will strike swiftly and that the the people of Israel will be safe and secure from those who um, wickedly mean to do them harm. And so we just pray for all the families that are mourning right now. We pray for all those parents that are worried as their kids are being called up into the IDF um, to fight this emergency war. And so just uh, be with them. And most importantly, Lord, bring salvation to your people, Israel. And it's in, in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. Um, that being said, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. The title of the sermon is God Above All Else. God Above All Else. And once you're at Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, I would ask that you, you would do so. Um, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. This is the word of the Lord, and here is what he says. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. This is the word of our Lord. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for allowing us to gather together in safety, to be able to open your word, to be able to, uh, to read it and to, to hear it preached and proclaimed. We thank you that we were able to sing songs that glorify you and edify one another. We thank you that we've been able to pray together. We thank you that we were able to uh, give an offering together. We thank you that we will be able to take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, in everything, we just are, are thankful. We have a thankful posture of our heart, and we thank you for this word. And I pray, Lord, you would remove me as much as possible. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive what is in your word, that we would live accordingly that we would be convicted and encouraged, and Lord, that we would repent where we need to. And God, at the same time, we pray that if there's anybody that doesn't know you, you would save them. And we just pray in everything, you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus, our Lord's name, we pray. Amen. Uh, please have a seat. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Putting it bluntly, it means to be a person that's truly saved. Saved people are people that long for God's heart and they seek to live for him. So why am I starting the sermon off with this question about what does it mean to be a person after God's heart? Well, there's two reasons. First, I just had the pleasure this week of attending the annual conference of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, and it was definitely a needed time for me. 
Certain commitments in my heart were reignited. The flames were rekindled, and that sometimes good conferences will do. It reminded me of what's at stake in each of our lives. It also reminded me that the Christian life is so much more than what is regularly lived out by many that claim the name of Jesus. So that's the first reason I opened with that question. It was stirred up by being refreshed by a God-glorifying conference. Well, what's the second reason I'm talking about being a person after God's own heart? It's because I've sensed for some time a problem in our church. And I'm not talking about the American church, though I think probably almost every American church does have the same problem. But I'm talking about us this morning. I I am. And so what's the problem? A spirit of lethargy. A spirit of lethargy has descended upon us, I think, in stealth. It's a spirit of lethargy when it comes to the things of God. And related to this is something even worse. And this is going to sound pretty blunt, but just just hear me out. I think a lot of us have become obediently captive to a false god, to an idol, namely the god of comfort, pleasure. I I, I just, it's no idol of stone, but instead uh, it's an invisible song of the sirens that lulls God's people into a spiritual slumber. And I think it hits people in our society hard. I think it hits us hard. And so I've been wanting to preach on this for some time, but it wasn't until this conference that God really like impressed it upon my heart that now is the time. And before I get into it, I want you to know my heart. I'm not going to preach as an accuser of the brethren. That's what Satan does. That is not what we are here for. Instead, I'd rather preach like the prophets of old. We've been seeing this in the book of Joel. Sometimes they say hard things, but it is always meant to stir the affections of God's people back to God. And that's the heart of of what I would like this text to do for us this morning. So I do pray that you will bear with me. So going back to the original question, what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Well, our text in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy this morning shows us Its main point answers this question, right, of what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart. So here's the point of the text. Your entire life must be consumed by the way of God. This is what it means to be a person after God's own heart. Your entire life must be consumed by the way of God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if your life is truly consumed by the way of God, it will be accompanied by three non-negotiable actions. Three L words that make it easy to remember. You will listen to God. You will love God. And you will live for God. Okay, these three things, listening, loving, and living for God, is how you would be consumed by the way of God. So this sermon is going to be a kind of topical sermon. It's still going to be expositional. We're going to go through the entire text verse by verse. The point of the sermon is the the, the point of the text. But it's topical because it's a standalone sermon. As you know, I've been going through Matthew. We'll be back in Matthew next time. So given that we are parachuting into Deuteronomy, I think it would be a good idea for me just to give a little bit of context because maybe not everybody even knows where Deuteronomy is. So the first five books of the Bible, it's near the beginning, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. It is the foundation of all the rest of the Bible. Deuteronomy is book number five of that. So it is actually the fifth book of the Bible. Now, real fast, Genesis, the first book, gives us the beginning of history and lays some very foundational things down for us. Exodus, the second book, tells us of how God saved Israel out of slavery from Egypt, delivered them out of slavery after judging Egypt with the ten plagues. 
The third book, Leviticus, then records Israel following God's command to set up a system of worship according to God's own design. That's the third book, Leviticus. The fourth book, Numbers, then records Israel rebelling against God. And so they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies. And then the next generation gets to go into the promised land. Well, Deuteronomy, the fifth book, is after that 40 years is up. So those guys are dead. The next generation, they're at the border. They're ready to cross into the promised land. And so Moses in Deuteronomy is giving final instructions for them. Now, considering these five books together, the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, all the rest of it is an outworking of everything that's written in these five books. And so is the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament is where we see Jesus, the Messiah, he's the one who fulfills everything in the first five books in the rest of the Old Testament. It all pointed to him. He brings salvation to Israel and to the nations, thus fulfilling all the promises that go back to Abraham and even before Abraham, all the way back to Adam and Eve. So now that Jesus has come and fulfilled these things, this gives us the ability to go back and read a book like Deuteronomy with better eyes than those who had to read it before Jesus came. And hopefully we'll, we'll be able to see that this morning. Now, our particular text in Deuteronomy is probably the most important part of Deuteronomy. Not probably, it is. So with all that, let's look at what God has to say to us here. Earlier I said that if, if, our, if our life is truly consumed by the way of God, then it's going to be accompanied by these three non-negotiable L words or actions. And the first one is we listen. We listen to God. So let's look at verse 4. The word of God says this in verse 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now this is the statement of faith of Israel. It's called the Shema after the first word because in Hebrew, the first word is Shema. Most Bible translations say, hear, O Israel. And I have to admit, I do like that better. It sounds so poetic, sounds better to my ears. But here's the problem. The word hear in English is a broad word. And what I mean is I can hear a noise, but not really know what I'm hearing. I could hear someone talking, but not quite make out what they're saying. I could hear without paying attention. And so this verse isn't just telling us to have our eardrums hear these words. No, in context, the word Shema or hear, it means to listen, pay attention, and obey. It has all that in mind. It's a call for the people of God. When you hear the word Shema, you stop what you're doing. Whatever it is, you stop. You still your mind, you still your heart, and you listen. What does God have for us? Okay, that way we can live in light of it. So for that reason, it might not sound as poetic, but the CSB does do us well by translating Shema as listen. Now, this is a verse, even though it's the statement of faith of Israel, this is a verse that every Christian should hold dear to their hearts. And I'll explain why in a moment. But for the Jews, this is a passage that everybody knows how to say in Hebrew, even if you don't speak Hebrew. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the foundation of everything else we believe. This is the foundation of our lives. So the first two words, listen, Israel, Shema Yisrael. After that, if you look, the next word is the Lord. But if you look closely at your Bible translation, the word Lord is in all caps, isn't it? What that's letting you know is that it's actually not the word Lord, it's the name of God. 
It's just in English, they substitute it with the word Lord, just like the Jews do with the, with the word Adonai. But in the Hebrew, it is the name of God. It's Yahweh. Now, I want you to think about that. God has a name. He has a personal name, and he revealed it to Israel. And we were supposed to refer to him by his name, the same way that we all refer to each other by our first names. Why? Well, because God's a personal God. And God entered into a personal relationship with his people. And if we don't stop and think about it, we can miss how mind-blowing it is. God is superior to us in every way possible. Think about it. He made us. We didn't make him. He's infinite. We're not. He's everywhere. We're not. He's all-powerful. We're weak. He's infinitely good. We are pretty stinking bad. He is infinitely holy. We aren't. He is infinitely righteous. We definitely aren't. So whenever you have an inferior in the presence of a superior, they never call the superior by a personal name. They never do. Children call their parents by their title, mom and dad. I don't walk up to my dad, hey, Barry, how's it going? It's just not how it works. Hey, Debbie, could I have a chicken sandwich? No, it's mom and dad. And even if it's affectionate rather than formal, it's still a title rather than the name. In the military, you always address higher-ranked people by their rank and last name. But those of a higher rank could always call you by your first name. It always tripped me out when I was like a lieutenant or a captain. There'd be a lieutenant colonel that would call me Stephen. Everybody else would call me Chaplain Feinstein. But here this person is Stephen, but I couldn't call them by their first name. That would just be inappropriate. And now that I'm the lieutenant colonel, I get to call people. Anyway, but... (laughs) But if I'm in the room with the general, I'm pouring coffee. So it really doesn't, really doesn't matter. And, and speaking of generals, the feeling gets bigger when a general calls you by your first name. What would be absolutely unimaginable would be a four-star general asking the lowest rank, a private, to call the general by his first name. It would just be weird. And if you think about it, a general and a private in reality, are equal. There's no difference between them. The general's not more the image of God than the private. The vast gap that's between a four-star general and a private is only based on arbitrary human hierarchies. And yet, those hierarchies, they don't represent reality, and yet we respect these hierarchies with fear and trembling. That's why I would not call a general by his first name. Well, the gap between God and man isn't arbitrary, it's real. And it's infinite. It absolutely represents reality. If there is anyone that we should only call by a title, it's God. Because that's what he is. He is God. He is the king. He is the Lord. He's the master. In Hebrew, he's the Melech Olam, or Melech Ha-Olam, which means king of the universe. And yet, that one comes down to our place and says, call me Yahweh. Call me by my name, because that is my name. So the first thing we're supposed to listen, or Shema, the first thing we're supposed to listen and pay attention to is that. Now, related to that is the next word in Hebrew, Eloheinu, which means our God. Now, I want you to think about that. The word our is a possessive word. He's not just God. He's our God. The one true God, the only real God that exists is our God. And the infinite God that made everything says, call me Yahweh and I'm yours. That is what this is getting at. Now that is amazing in light of the fact that we have all sinned. We have all forfeited our right to be at peace with God. 
And for all the nations that don't know God, he's not their God. They can't say Yahweh, our God. They can only call him God. They can't call him our God. But by grace, God's own free gift, he saves us from our sin through the Messiah Jesus, and he makes us his own. Our relationship with him is so close that we call him by name and we tell the whole world that he's ours. We have a special relationship with him. And he chose us for that special relationship. The verse then ends telling us something about Yahweh. It says, the Lord is one. And again, the word Lord, if you look at it, it's all caps again. So it's Yahweh in the Hebrew. There is only one God. His name is Yahweh. He is our God, and he himself is one. What that means is there is divinity, and then there's everything else. And the divinity is one. There are not many gods, but only one. So this statement rules out any system that has more than one God. But what's interesting for us who believe in Jesus is the word one in Hebrew is echad, and this word often shows the unity of a plurality. What do I mean? Well, in Genesis chapter one, it says God created evening and morning. That's more than one thing. Evening and morning, echad day, one day. It then says also in Genesis one, God gathered the many waters to echad place, one place. The many are one. In Genesis two, he says the man and his woman become echad, flesh, one flesh. And so so the bottom line that I'm getting at here is Yahweh our God is echad or one, but this word allows for the one God to be a plurality. The Old Testament shows us the Father is God. It also speaks of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit as being God. And it also speaks of the Word of God as doing things as God. So the Word is God. And so when we get to the New Testament, Jesus pulls this all together for us, showing us that the one God eternally exists as three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three are echad rather than many. They are one God, and yet the one God is the three persons, and yet the three persons share the one divinity. They are not three gods, but one God. It's a great mystery in the scriptures, but it's clearly there. Now, what's mind-blowing is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Paul takes this Shema, the statement of faith from Israel, and he puts both the Father and the Son in it. He identifies the Father as the Eloheinu, our God, and he identifies the Son as the Yahweh, our Lord. So, so look at this. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Every scholar almost universally recognizes Paul has taken the Shema and doing this, showing us that the Yahweh and the God and the Shema are Jesus and the Father. Okay, they both share that one divinity. And then, of course, you have a passage like 2 Corinthians 13, 13, that shows the Holy Spirit is part of this divinity as well. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And there's a lot more verses that we could, we could point to that show this. I bring all this up to show you that this fundamental statement of faith for Israel is our statement of faith too. It is entirely consistent with Trinitarian belief. So, 
Let me recap then what we've seen with the Shema. We are being told to listen, pay attention, and obey whatever's going to be said. And what has been said so far is that God is our God personally because he chose us out of the whole world. The nature of this relationship is so personal that the infinite God of the universe condescends himself in ultimate humility and tells us to call him by his name. Yahweh, our God, is God, and God is one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. And because God is God, he and God is one, that means there's only one sovereign and one king, and it isn't you. That's what it means. There is one sovereign, one king in all of existence, and it isn't you, it isn't me. It is God. He is the king of kings. He is the master and lord over all. His name is Yahweh, and we were singing in eternal light. The name Yahweh means I am. It speaks of God having no beginning, having no ending, God being pure existence, pure actuality. God does not come from anyone. He had no beginning. Instead, all that exists comes from God, right? He is the one with no beginning and no end. That is what his name Yahweh points to. He is the great I am. As a result, he has absolute claim over all. And therefore, any disobedience to him is rebellion. It's cosmic treason. And that's how the world stands before God in rebellion to the one who has absolute claim over everything. But to us, God is, as I keep saying, our God. And so what does that indicate? Well, if God is one and he is our God, then we must have no other gods because he's our God. It would be ultimate betrayal against the almighty one that lowered himself to let us call him by his name. That would be treachery against the infinitely righteous God who chose to show us mercy for our sins rather than justice for our sins. And when we consider what it cost him to be able to show us that mercy, it becomes a thousand times worse if we have other gods before or besides him. Now remember, God is infinitely holy, just, and righteous. If he simply looked the other way at our sin, he would be a horrible judge. So he will not look the other way. The penalty had to be paid. And since we have sinned against an infinite God with infinite dignity, our sin calls for an infinite penalty. Now, we're not infinite. So if we were to pay that penalty, it would require infinite time on our part because we don't have infinite value. We just don't. So that's what it means for us to pay our own penalty. It is a forever payment. But if God were to show us mercy, then someone would have to pay the penalty in our place, a person, a human, okay? That human would have to be perfect. Otherwise, if that human had sin, he'd be paying his own penalty, not ours, right? So it has to be a perfect human that owes no penalty. But let's say you had a perfect human, a sinless human. He still couldn't pay our debt. You want to know why? Because no human has infinite value. Only God has infinite value. So what did God do? He brings these two ideas together. The second person of the Trinity became a man and added humanity to himself 2,000 years ago. He didn't stop being God. Instead, he lowered himself even more than he did in letting us call him by his name, Yahweh. He lowered himself to the point where Yahweh himself was born as a baby and needed his diaper changed and had a normal human name like us. Jesus, Yeshua, is a common human name. It does mean salvation, but it was also just a regular common human name. So in this one person 
You have both the divine and the human nature subsisting without confusion, without being mixed. It's not 50% God, 50% man, 100% God, 100% man, both of these in the person of Jesus Christ. In so doing, there now existed a human that could pay our human penalty because he's a human, but at the same time, he was God and therefore he possessed infinite value. And by him going to the cross in our place, he was able in a single temporary transaction, because he has infinite value, he was able to pay the infinite debt for any and all humans that would repent or turn away from their sins and surrender their life over to him. That's how it works. That is why him dying on that cross for six hours, a temporary transaction, could cover our penalty that would have lasted forever. It's because he has infinite value. That's really where it comes from. Now, over 700 years before Christ even became flesh and did all of this, the prophet Isaiah said this of him in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. It says, But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. That's how we're saved. Since Jesus did this for us and paid our infinite price, and since that is what it cost for God to show us mercy, then yes, getting back to my point, placing any other God before or besides him is wretchedness. God's sovereign choice of us and Jesus' all-sufficient work to save us is why Yahweh is our God rather than just the God. He is the God, but to us, he's our God. And if he is our God, then we must have no other. But this is where you need to hear me carefully. Anything you place ahead of him is just that, another God, something placed before him. It might not be a statue. It might not have a name like Zeus or Hera, but it is an idol nevertheless. And I'll come back to this in a while. I mean, after all, I, I opened the sermon with, with the statement that I think a lot of us have succumbed to a worship of an idol. And the reason I spent so much time on the Shema, this first verse, is because it sets the foundation of everything we believe. It sets the foundation for why we must not give ourselves to an idol of any sort. It's grounded in, in something real, in God, in his grace. So everything I'm going to say for the rest of the sermon is grounded upon God and his grace. This verse showed us who God is and what our relationship is to him as believers. That then provides the foundation for everything else I'm going to say. And it's all going to be said again in light of who God is and who God is to us and who we are to God. Those, those three things. Every command that God gives is unbrokenly tethered to this titanium foundation of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. This is why it is the statement of faith. So, now that we've seen this Shema, this statement of faith, this foundation, we must understand that such a foundation demands a command. There is no way such a profound statement would be made without a command attached to it. And that command, as we're going to see, is to love the Lord your God. If everything I've said so far is true, and that is who God is to us, then what command could possibly be more fundamental than loving this amazing God? There's nothing that would be more fundamental. This God, Yahweh, we're to love him. And so we're going to look at verse 5 and we're going to see this command. Remember, if your life is truly consumed by the way of God, then you'll listen and next you will love God. So verse 5, 
is also something most Jews grow up learning to say in Hebrew, and for good reason. This is the greatest command in all scripture. Did you know that? Verse 5 is the greatest commandment. How do I know that? Because Jesus said so. A scribe asks him what the greatest commandment is. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 38. Teacher, which command is in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. So what we are about to read, according to Jesus, is the most important command in all of Scripture. Again, we got songs to help us remember this in Hebrew. The words, again, are beautiful. The CSB translates it for us very well. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, I want us to think about this for a second. After verse 4 declares to us who God is and who we are to God, then the very next verse gives the most important commandment in all the Bible. Do you think that's a coincidence? That the most important command follows after this most important statement about who God is? No, it's not a coincidence. Since Yahweh is our God and since he alone is God and he alone is our God, then what does that require of us? Love. It requires love, which we sang another song. They'll know us by our love. But here we're being called first to love God. You are to love, quote, the Lord your God. Okay, and again, Lord, all caps, you are to love Yahweh, your God. He's your God. So, of course, you should love him. The question is, how should you love him? And that's what it's going to tell us. But before I answer that, let me first define love. It's important that we define it because our culture gets this wrong. They get it very wrong. People think that love is an emotion or a feeling. They think it's thoughts and feelings of affection towards someone or something. Okay, that might be, uh, but, but that's not how the Bible defines love. Those things might be the result of love, but something's, love's something more concrete. It's something more fundamental than that. Love is rarely spoken of as a noun. It is always described as action. It's a verb. Love means to give. It means to sacrifice. It means to give these things on behalf of someone else. I'll just share two verses with us so that we can uh, we could see this demonstrated. John 3.16, I accidentally put 17 there as well, but I'm only going to read verse 16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But notice, he loved the world in this way. How? He gave his only son. And then, of course, we look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, there's probably a dozen other verses that say the same thing in different contexts. But did you notice what they have in common? Love is always defined not as a feeling, but as a giving. It's giving of yourself for someone else. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Husbands are then called to love their wives in the same way. We give ourselves to them. It's a sacrifice. And so when you see all the passages telling us to love God, to love our spouses, to love each other in the church, to love our neighbors, that is what it means to sacrifice yourself for them. It's giving, it's sacrifice, it's putting others ahead of yourself. That's why it's not a feeling, because sacrifice almost never feels good while you're doing it. 
It might feel good after the fact, but it doesn't feel good while you're doing it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. Here, you could have my flavor of candy that I don't like. That's not a sacrifice. Okay, a sacrifice necessarily costs you something. Okay, so, the, so love is the action of giving that thing that is costly. Not warm thoughts, not warm affections. But instead, love is action on behalf of them that costs you something. So... If that is what love is, then let's go back to the greatest commandment in all the Bible. Verse 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, if God alone is your God and you know him by name, then you have to love him. But how must you love him? With everything you've got. That's what that verse says. It says first to love him with all your heart. Not some of your heart. All of your heart. Now, your heart is not this organ that pumps blood. I guess in an anatomy book it is. But in the Bible, it's your inner person. It's the real you. It is your will, your desires. Everything that animates and moves you is your heart. And so what he's saying is at your very core, all that drives you should drive you towards the Lord. And given the definition of love, then, if you were to love him with that inner person, with everything you've got, then what it means is you are to give up yourself. On behalf of God. And you're to do it with all your heart. Not a little of your heart. Not half of your heart. But all of your heart. This means every bit of what drives you. It's all supposed to be for him. Not just some of it. This means whenever you have a desire or a goal in life. Whether it be temporary or big. If it gets in the way of God's commands. If it gets in the way of putting him first. You sacrifice that for him. Otherwise, you're not loving him with all your heart. You're withholding something from him. So we are to give him everything. Yeah, we have to give up some things we want if it it runs into conflict with what God has called us to do. And I hope that doesn't sound unfair to us. Someone might be like, well, that's not fair. Well, it's not. Why is it not? 1 John 4.10. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Another passage that defines love for us. And it's very specific. You didn't love him first. You were a rebel sinning against him. And he could have left you there and let you sin all the way to hell. But he didn't. Okay, Even though you loved yourself first. God loved you nevertheless. He sent Jesus for you. Jesus paid the debt of your sin. He gave you the credit of his perfect righteousness also that God could have mercy on you. Now remember, you or me, none of us, we are not infinitely valuable. But God sacrificed someone that is infinitely valuable to save you. That is love. Giving up something worth way more than us to save us. That is love. And with that love, God pulled you out of the kingdom of darkness and he placed you in the kingdom of his son. So when God commands us to love him in return, how dare any of us ever shriek at that thought? Not when we look at how he loves us. We can never love him like he loved us because we can never give anything of infinite value. But that's exactly what he gave for us. So knowing that we can never truly return the favor and never truly love him with an equal love that he has for us, the least we could do is love him with everything we have. That's the point. We can't give what he gave to us, but we could give all that we can. We, and what is that? Ourselves. Our whole selves. That's what we could offer him. 
Now, Moses, he doesn't stop with the heart, though. He also says to love God with all of our soul. Now, the soul is the immaterial part of us. And you might say, what's the difference between that and the heart? Well, here's the thing. You have a body, you have a soul. They go together. We are an embodied soul. Those are two parts of us. The heart is just the captain that runs both of them. Okay? But these are two different parts of our existence. So you're supposed to love them with all your body and your heart as it leads your body, but also the part of you that never dies, the soul. You're to love him with everything. We're not being called just to love him with our body, but our soul. That means every ounce of our being. It's all to be given to him. And this shouldn't be surprising. Doesn't Paul say you're not your own? You were bought at a price? We must live like it from a heart of love. Now, the text then says we are to love God with all of our strength. This is interesting because it's not some strength. It's all strength. And I want you to think about what that, that looks like. We could, we could start, I could start with a, a worldly example. Have you ever physically worked so hard that at the end of the day, all your muscles were spent to where you lay down in bed and you're like, I mean, you got nothing left, right? That means you gave all your strength. You had nothing left. You exerted it all. Well, he says to love God with all of our strength. That means every day, every day we're to give of ourselves to God to the point that we don't have anything left to give that day. That's what it means with all of your strength. It means with every ounce of what you have left, what God puts before you each day, you have to figure out how do I love him with all my strength and all these things he has me doing each day. That's what it's being called. That's what we're being called on to do here with every ounce of what we have left. Now, listen, some people have more strength than others. God doesn't care about that. All he cares about is whether your strength, whether your strength is great or small. He just cares that you give it all to him. That's what he cares about. If you have twice the strength of someone else, but you only use half of it and they use all theirs, they gave more than you. Even though like in a measurement, it looks like they gave equal. No, what God cares about is that you give him all that you have. If at the end of the day, you have something left over that you could have given to God, but you chose not to, then maybe you didn't love him with all your strength, but only with some of it. Now, you might be thinking that loving God this way would be exhausting. Of course it is. But it is a good exhaustion. It's healthy. Uh, Again, another worldly example. When when I leave uh, the CrossFit class in the morning, I don't have anything left. I'm getting old. And by the time I walk out of there, the rest of the day, I'm grumbling when I'm getting out of my chairs. John has to hear me every day make little old man noises and stuff like that. But, but the reason, even though it feels like I'm in pain, I feel good at the same time. Why? Because I spent my muscles in all the ways they were designed to be spent. And guess what happens when you do that every day? The body gets stronger. It results, it, it benefits from exhaustion. Okay? It's the same thing if you do regular old bodybuilding. Why do the experts always tell you on the last three reps to get to muscle failure? Because if you don't expend all your energy, you have not used all your strength and your muscles won't grow. You're actually wasting your time at the gym if those last three reps don't burn. Okay? So even in the physical health world, they tell you all your strength or don't waste your time. Right? Same thing here. Now, think about it. If I don't work out, and I have all this extra unused physical energy, where does it go? Let me give you a hint. 
It goes to the fat. And then the muscles get progressively weaker until I get to such a point that I get injured for a whole week just from an intense sneeze. Okay? That's what happens by us not exerting ourselves to um, our, our fullness. I always, when I was younger, I, I always wondered, like, why do old people's sneezes sound so powerful? I don't know, but they are. And they're getting more and more intense every year. The powers within us just grow while the bodies get weak. But anyhow, okay, so here's the thing. It's the same thing when it comes to loving God. If you're loving him with all your strength to where at the end of the day you've properly served him with what you had to give him that day, you're only going to get stronger. Your capacity to serve only gets larger. Once What was once hard will become easier. And when bad things come your way, yeah, they're going to hurt you, but they're not going to knock you out of the race. They just make you sore. They make you really sore sometimes, but you're able to keep on keeping on. But when you live for yourself ahead of God and you serve him only with the amount of strength that you feel like giving him because you want your comfort more, then you don't grow stronger. And by the way, I'm not telling you comfort's bad. What I'm telling you is once you're spent, then there's time for comfort. But a lot of times we're like, no, we want the comfort first, and then we don't spend our strength on the things of our Lord, okay? And when we do that, we grow weaker. And obeying the biblical commands that seem hard will stay hard because we're not getting stronger. If evangelism seems hard for you right now, it's going to continue to feel hard for the rest of your life unless you start growing into it, right? That's just the way it works, That's just how it goes. And listen, when the difficult storms in your life come, whether it be financial problems, marriage problems, physical health problems, the loss of loved ones, these are all the horrible things that on this side of eternity we have to face. And listen, if you're not growing in the Lord, you could get easily overwhelmed by those things, which is understandable. You could feel like you're drowning. Okay, you can. But if you're growing in the Lord, it doesn't make it to where those things aren't going to phase you. Of course they're going to phase you. Some of those sneezes still phase me. But you're not in bed for a week, you know, from the sneeze. It, metaphorically speaking, these things will hurt you. But you're going to keep on keeping on in the Lord. You're going to exude a strength where when people look at you, they're like, how does he do it? Or how does she do it? And the answer is because you've continually grown. Because you've been giving the Lord your strength. And he keeps increasing your, your capacity. So with all that, let me, let me recap. In light of who God is and who God is to us and who we are to God, we are given this greatest commandment, which is to love God with all that you have, your body, your soul, and your heart. And please listen, you might be thinking, but man, that's a tall order. Nobody's taught me how to love God this way. You don't have to be taught. If you're saved, God has already given you the ability to love this way. You don't have to learn it. You just have to do it. In Romans chapter 5, Paul speaks about how God grows us, at least in the first part of Romans 5, how God grows us through the trials of life, through suffering. He then tells us after that where our ability to love comes from. In Romans 5, 5, he says this hope, he's talking about our growth in suffering, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Think about that. God's own, your heart is a, a container. God the Father pours his love into your heart through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that's dwelling in you. So you now have God's capacity to love filling your heart. You just have to do it. You just have to choose to do it. Okay? And when we don't, it's because we placed something before him. And now we're, again, violating that Shema. 
Well, where the text is going to take us next is predictable and logical. We saw that when we, uh, when, that we are to listen to God. And so picture that as a river. That's the source of the river, the Shema. And now everything flows downstream. So flowing downstream from that statement of faith is the command that we love God. Flowing downstream from that now is how we live, right? We're to listen, we're to love. And then the third thing is now we are to live for God. So the question is, what does it look like to live for God? Well, we'll look at the rest of the text. Now, verse 6 makes sense based on what we said or what was said in verse 5. Let's look at verse 6. It says, these words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Kind of sounds like what Jesus has been teaching us in Matthew, doesn't it? Okay, this was always what the scripture said, that it's supposed to be in our heart. These words are to be in your heart. If loving God with all, if you are loving God with all your heart, then God's words will be in your heart. Now, when Moses says these words that I'm giving you today, he's not only talking about verses four and five. He's actually talking about the whole book of Deuteronomy because those are the words that he was giving them that day. But we can take what Deuteronomy says and expand that to mean the whole Bible. How? Well, when Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to sin against God, Jesus responded to the first temptation by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Let's listen to it. Let's listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I want us to think about that. When Moses wrote Deuteronomy, that was as much as God had revealed at that time. But God's still saying, live on every word from him. After Deuteronomy, God kept speaking for the next 1,400 years until the entire Bible was complete. So if we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God, then it's all these words of the scripture that are, quote, to be on your heart. The whole Bible is supposed to be on your heart. And let me tell you something. The word of God is not going to get into your heart if you have an unused Bible on your bookshelf. And I, and I know I've said this before. If you balance it on the top of your head and you walk around like this all day, it is not going to magically seep into your mind. And then through osmosis, you have mastered the word of God. That's not how it works. King David made it clear how this happens, how you get the word in your heart, well, your heart and your mind. He tells us what the flourishing person is like, just like Jesus did in the Beatitudes in Psalm chapter 1. He tells us that the flourishing person is the person that bears fruit from God and stands and their leaves don't wither even in the, the blistering heat. And that person that bears fruit and doesn't wither is the person that meditates on God's word. But the question for us is how often, how often Psalm chapter 1 verse 2, instead his delight is in the Lord's instruction he meditates on it day and night, all day, all day long. Now, you might say, well, how am I going to eat and sleep if I'm meditating on God's word 24 hours? Well, it's not literally saying 24 hours, but it does mean that throughout the whole day, you are thinking and reflecting upon and reading God's word. So what I do is I read my three chapters a day and I pick one verse to meditate on deeply and then I think about it throughout the rest of the day. That is meditating on it, okay? You're chewing on it to get it into your heart and your mind. That way, when you come across something throughout your day, you could see that thing through the biblical eyes of what you have been reflecting upon. Now, some people might say, ah, 
Pastor, that's too much work. If that is you, go back to verse 5. You are supposed to love the Lord your God with all your strength. So if that's a lot of work for you, well, do it because you owe him it. All your strength. Love him with all your strength. Okay. Once we got that figured out, okay, verse 5 again, then we come back down to verse 6. All right. I need God's word in my heart. And I want you to think about this as well. We have a big advantage as new covenant believers over our old covenant counterparts. See, we have the word of God richly dwelling in us, as Colossians 3.16 says. But we also have the Holy Spirit richly dwelling in us, according to Ephesians 5.18. That's the promise of the new covenant, that the Holy Spirit will dwell in us and write God's word on his heart. They only had the word in the old covenant. We have the word and the spirit working together. And those two passages, Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.18, write them down, look at them in your own time. But here's what's fascinating. They both command us to do the same things. The, the list of commands in those two verses are identical, but Colossians says, do it because the word of God dwells richly in you. And Ephesians says, do those same things because the spirit of God dwells richly in you. We do these things by the spirit and the word working together because we are members of the new covenant. That is a gift of the new covenant that the third person of the Trinity is living in us and writing his word upon our hearts. But he only writes the word upon your heart as you read the word and dwell upon it. It's not like you're going to wake up in the morning and, and you have a book of the Bible memorized that you've never looked at before. That's not how it works. Oh, thank you, Holy Spirit. It's not like the Matrix. Okay, it's not. So you have to be in the word. And as you're in the word, God will write it on your heart. And then you're able to walk in accordance with his word. This makes me think of Jeremiah chapter 16, or chapter 6, verse 16, the first part of it. I'll quote it from the TLV because I just love the way it flows here. It says, thus says Adonai, stand in the roads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Right? So what is the good path, the ancient paths, the good way? It's what's in the word of God. But to, to stand in the road and to look and to see it, you have to know what's in the word. And then as you do, the Spirit will write it on your heart, and you will know the good way to walk, and you will find rest in and for your souls. Now, if you love God, and therefore you have his word in your heart, then that stream keeps moving. So love of God flows to where the word dwells in your heart, and then from your heart that river keeps flowing. The word will not stay in your heart. It next is going to move to your lips. Look at verse 7. It says, repeat them. Repeat what? These words. The words of the Bible, repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Now, this is a very comprehensive statement. How often should you be talking about God's word according to this? As much as you can to as many people as you can. Now, obviously, first, it goes towards your family. Repeat these words of the Bible to your children. Parents, it is your responsibility to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You cannot expect the church to do your job. We will come alongside you. We will help you the best that we can with our children's ministries. But God has not empowered us to do what only you have been called primarily to do. We can help you, but it falls upon you. And that is one reason so many people who've been raised in the church from Generation Z are falling away because their parents haven't obeyed this. 
Their parents didn't love God with their heart, soul, and body, and strength. And they didn't have God's word dwelling in their heart. And so then it didn't flow down to their lips, and they didn't speak God's word, and they didn't live consistently according to God's word. And so then, and then they bring their kids to, to shallow churches, and so these kids grow up only seeing a shallow faith of their parents, a shallow faith of their church. It's no wonder they walk away. It's because we're supposed to be teaching our children. And of course, we're supposed to not just be teaching them. We teach everybody. Now, the text is going to tell us how often to talk about God's word, if you notice. It says also, quote, when you sit in your house, end quote. So when you're chilling at home, talk to each other about God's word. When you invite folks into your home, talk about God's word. Now, I know you might be thinking, but all those progressives out there, they say that our faith needs to stay in our home. Well, we don't listen to them. That's not an option for us. Because in addition to talking about the word in our home, look what it says next. It says also, quote, when you walk along the road, end quote. In other words, when you go about your daily business out in the public sphere, you're still talking about God's word. So in your house, in private, and also in public. When you're at work, that's the public sphere. Hey, that's when you're on your road. You're talking the word of God. That's what it means for God's words to be on your lip, not just for your family, but your, his words are on your lip for the world as well. How else are they going to hear about God? How else will they know about Jesus and the gospel? Again, if God's word is in your heart, it will be on your lips. If it's not on your lips, then it's not in your heart. And if it's not in your heart, it's because you're not loving him with all your strength. And if you're not loving him with all your strength, let's go back to verse 4. We're failing to grasp who he is and what he's done for us and who he's made us to be in him. Again, this all flows. The only reason we would close our mouths is because we value our comfort more than we love our God. And loved ones, we have a word for that, idolatry. And we don't want to be guilty of that. And by the way, it's not just the gospel that we're, we're telling people, you know, the world, they have opinions about everything of life, and they just say it and say it and say it, and yet we act like we're the only ones that have to keep it, our, our opinions quiet. God has given us wisdom in his word to talk about all aspects of life in a way that blows them out of the water. Remember, King Solomon spoke God's words with such wisdom that people came from all over the world to hear him. So what's happening in Israel? What's happening in politics? What's happening with the economy? What's happening anywhere? We have the eyes of Christ through the scripture. So yeah, when we're out in the public sphere, we should be talking about those things from a specifically biblical way as well. And speaking the gospel, all that is what it means to have God's word in our heart and to have it um, on our lips. And so a lot of us uh, have regular secular jobs or what have you. Hey, while you're there, you're thinking about how does God's word arrange what I'm going to say, how I'm going to say it. And that just needs to be at the forefront of what we're doing. Well, Moses tells us more. He also tells, he tells us who to speak to, everyone. He tells us where to speak, private and public spheres. Next, he tells us how often. You might say, well, well how often do I do this? Once a week? Um, no, he says, when you lie down and when you get up. I want you to think about that. You wake up, first thing, God, you're awesome. When you go to bed, God, you're awesome. I mean, all, your day is enveloped. It is bracketed with the word of God. It's from morning to evening. And again, if we're loving him with all of our strength, then his words will be in our hearts. And if they're in our hearts, they'll be heard from our lips wherever we are throughout the day. Again, to not do it is a choice to not do it. And that choice is indicative and reflective of us putting something ahead of God. 
Now, some are going to say, Pastor, this is radical, way too radical. You are making it sound like we are to be so consumed with God that he gets us in our entirety. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. And Jesus did not mince words when he spoke just how radical it is to follow him. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26, this is what he says to his disciples. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, which means to die. Okay, Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? And you want to know what the sad thing is? We make trades where we don't even get the whole world, um, but we'll put little things ahead of God. We're not even getting the whole world. And even Jesus is saying, if you did, that's nothing compared to losing your soul. God gave all for us, and he calls us to give all for him. Belonging to God is a call to throw all your chips on the table and bet it all on Christ. Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? And just to, just to say this, what the world and what nominal Christians call fanatical zealous Christianity is what the Bible calls Christianity. I mean, if we're just seeing how this is described. Now, loved ones, I say this with the utmost sincerity, but it is impossible to say we have God's words on our lips in a manner that reflects this text when the only time we get with other believers is on Sunday morning. If we are to be talking about God's word from morning to evening, then there's going to be more than just Sunday morning, right? And it's going to be more than just talking with our families. It's going to be more than just us talking. It's going to be us being with other believers so that they could talk and speak to us as well. That, that believers are supposed to be finding ways to talk biblical shop with each other because that is how iron sharpens iron. If there is little desire in your heart to get together with other believers to talk the word of God, then please repent. Please I know all of us have different thresholds of strength, and I don't expect everyone to be as involved as myself or Pastor Josh or Pastor John. But what I do know is there is no one that is so busy that they can't get with other believers from this church once per week outside of Sunday morning. No one is that busy. No one. No one. We have a lot of small groups here. Some of them are booming, like the college group and the, the women's study. Some of our Bible studies have about 15 people in them, but, but five of the people in each of them are in all the groups, right? And so when we think about it, it means the majority of our folks, yeah, we got a lot going to the, the booming studies and some going to these other ones, but it means the majority of our folks are not getting together to speak the word with their brothers. And listen, there's other ways to get together, fellowship, meeting for coffee, doing life group stuff. That's all important as well. But there is a need to get together specifically to sharpen each other with the word as well. And I don't say this part to shame us. I say this part just like it was, it was eye-opening for me. When I was in Nicaragua, I was among a people that worked typically longer hours than we are used to, and yet that church still met every day. Most of their people showed up. Not everybody showed up, but most of their people showed up. And the pastors told me that the people that they think are slackers are the ones that show up only three times a week. And I'm like, your slackers would be our on-fire fanatics. <laughs> 
Uh, and then you talk to, to John, he sees the same thing in Vietnam. I remember when Courtney Polk went to the Philippines, uh, she saw the same thing when she came back. And, and so it's just one of those things where I don't know how we, we self-justify things in our mind, but we're missing something. We're missing something big, something that, that does not square with this text that we are reading. Loved ones, Sunday night worship service, I don't think everybody needs to be there, but it should be more than seven people. It really should. I understand some people got to get up early and things like that. But what I will tell you this is even on my, my military weekends, I'll drive from Orange County straight to our church on Sunday night. I'm running on fumes, but you want to know why I do that? Because I know I still have that little bit of strength left to spend. And you know what I'm going to spend it on? I'm going to spend it on my brothers who slaved all week to bring God's word to me and my family. I'm not just going to ignore them and, and let that all be for vain. And when I get home, I do fall asleep the second I hit that bed. It's just, just the way it works. Beloved ones, I, I just pray that, that so many of our hearts will be ignited for this. Our affections for God can be stirred up to such a point that comfort doesn't win as much as it is. Okay? Again, what I'm describing here is not extreme Christianity. It's Christianity 101. It's exactly what this text is saying. Again, if you look at it, I'm not embellishing anything. It's capping the day, like, you know, when you get up, when you go to sleep, it's everywhere. So anyhow, I'll say no more on that, okay? Instead, I'll just finish the text. If our relationship flows downstream into total, a relationship with God flows downstream into total love for God, which then flows down to his word being on our hearts, which then flows down to his words being on our lips all the time, then the final flow is seen in verses 8 and 9. If the word of God is to be in our hearts and on our lips, then it's a really good idea to have visible reminders of the word of God all over the place. Because remember, this is all about living for God. And the more we see his word, the more we have reminders for it, the more we'll think about it and speak about it. So look at verses 8 and 9. It says, bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Now, both the Old and New Testaments give us a lot of amazing physical pictures of spiritual, biblical realities. For example, we take the Lord's Supper every week because it's a physical picture that reminds us of the spiritual realities of the gospel. Well, the Old Testament has a lot of stuff like that, physical pictures that remind us of this stuff. I still have my tabernacle set up in my backyard for the Feast of Tabernacles, even though it ended yesterday, because when I look at that thing... It reminds me of huge portions of scripture. And then I get to have my kids look at it, and I get to talk to them about it. And so this physical object helps us think about God's word. Well, here in our text, the Israelites were commanded to fasten some portion of the word of God to their hands. That way, as they're working with their hands, they know their hands belong to God. What does 1 Corinthians 10.31 say? Do all things to the glory of God. Whatever work you're doing, it's to his glory if you're doing it with excellence. Okay, so, so it reminded them their hands belong to God. They were also to fasten it on their forehead so that it's always before their eyes. That way, if the eyes are tempted to look at something unwholesome, nope, you got this word to remind you to reflect on God. And it's close to their head. It reminds them to be thinking and meditating on the word of God. Now, Jews to this day still do what verse 9 says. We place a portion of scripture in a little box on our doorpost called a mezuzah, and that's the Hebrew word in verse 9. That way, when we leave our house, the last thing we see is a reminder of the Bible. And when we come back to our house, the first thing we see is a reminder of the Bible. These things are all there for a reason. There's other passages in the law that 
Tell them to wear tassels around their four corners to let them know that the word of God is all around them. And of course, in tradition, each tassel has five knots, one for each of the books of Moses, so that when you're feeling it, you're thinking about it, right? So when you're away from your mezuzah and you're forgetting about that reminder, you have these other tangible reminders about the word of God. Now, as Christians, we are not obligated to do these things as they are described here, but we are still obligated to obey the command. And what I'm telling you is most of you already obey this command. Think about it. Think about it. You probably have like things from Hobby Lobby with Bible scriptures on it that are hung up in your house, magnets with scripture that you put on your refrigerator. Some of you have uh, Bible verses on your phone screensaver, so when you lift it and it illuminates, the first thing you see is a scripture. Those are all examples that are very, very similar to this, and so keep doing that because it helps keep the word of God before you. And of course, if you're a Jewish believer in the Lord, you could still accomplish this with the traditional methods that are also mentioned in this verse. The point is, have these extra little things around you that help you think about the word, because then they remind you for it to be on your lips wherever you go. So all that concludes our text. Our knowledge of God and our relationship to him should be shown in zealous love for him, which is then shown in how we live for him. How we live for him is then entirely wrapped up in his word, which is given to us in the Bible. Knowing this should then help us put to death this big idol in our lives, the God of comfort and pleasure. Now, we all know, because a lot of us quote it a lot, as a good reminder to us, that James, the brother of the Lord, he teaches us in James chapter 2, that faith without works is dead. Do you know then how he illustrates it, though? This is fascinating. When I was preparing this sermon, it's something actually Pastor John uh, brought to my attention. I'm like, yeah, you're right. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James quotes the Shema, verse 4, at least partially. And then he tells us what the person is like that knows the Shema, but doesn't live that way. Check this out, James 2, 19. You believe that God is one. Good, even the demons believe, and they shudder. In other words, the person that believes what verse 4 of our text says, but does not love God like verse 5 and does not live for God like verses 6 through 9, James is saying that person's like a demon. So we need to ask ourselves this. Is our love of comfort worth that? Is it worth having our faith described by the Bible as being compared to that of demons? I don't think it's worth it. Not I don't think. We know it's not worth it. And so we, we just need to continue to grow in this way. Now, brothers and sisters, my goal was not to beat up on us and accuse us, but instead to use God's word as a mirror by which we can look at ourselves and see if our reflections line up. My hope was to stir our affections for God so that if we don't match up to the reflection of the word, we would repent and we would start moving in that direction. Now, it is a, a forward-moving, progressive type of movement. I love the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And I'll leave this up as I explain it. But he says, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus is the perfect image of God. He fulfilled this passage perfectly. Did anybody love God more than Jesus with his heart, mind, and soul? No. Did anybody have God's word more on his lips than Jesus? 
No, and even Jesus had all the little tassels and stuff like that. He did it perfectly. So then we can look at him and say, wow, that is what it looks like. He is the perfect image of godliness as the God-man. And so if we are truly saved, we are being transformed. We're being transformed into his image. But notice how it is worded. And this is where you should get some encouragement. It doesn't happen all at once. It's happening throughout our lives. Notice he says we are being transformed. So you're not fully transformed yet. You're being transformed. It's happening. But then he tells us how it works. It's from glory to glory. From glory to glory. What that means is we keep growing in degrees of glory. So you look at our text. You then look at our Lord. You then look at yourself. And you're like, man, I know I love God, but I know I've given comfort way too much real estate in my heart. So then you start repenting and your transformation then progresses from the degree of glory that you have right now to a greater degree. You're now looking a little more like Jesus. See, right now you look somewhat like Christ, let's say, but then you repent and now you look even more like him. And then there's something else later you repent of and you then jump up the degree even more and you continually look more like him. This progresses for your whole life. But it only works if you actively and intentionally pursue everything that our text talked about. If you're not pursuing this, then you stay at the same degree your whole life. And James describes that as having a faith kind of like a demon. And so we have to be active. We have to be intentional. And if you are, I promise you will increasingly start living in greater conformity to the Lord. Your life will look like our text, and you will continue growing in Christ-likeness, hopping from one degree of glory to the next. And again, your life will look like it. It'll be a great witness to the lost. You will each day slay this God of comfort more and more and truly and truly love Yahweh, our God, with everything we have. But the last thing that text says is we don't do it alone. This is done. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, of course, we need the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God in us, working through the Word of God, will grow us in this way. So what I suggest is, since Jesus fulfilled our text perfectly, read the Gospels. Read the Gospels a lot. See Jesus display this text in perfection. That way you see what it looks like all the time. And then get together with other believers as much as you can and sharpen each other because we will progress from one degree of glory to the next. So may we be committed to this with all that we are. May God be with us. If there's any unbeliever here, I've already explained that God is our God, but he's not your God. He's holy, he's infinite, he's just, and you have sinned against him trillions of times. But you also heard what God did to save us, what God did to save people, how he became flesh, earned perfect righteousness, and gives the credit of that to those who believe, and he died for our sins as the one with infinite value to pay our infinite debt. And then he rose on the third day. You can be saved too, to where Yahweh is not just God, but he becomes your God. You simply have to turn away from your sins, which is to repent, and believe on Jesus with all your heart. Surrender to him. Confess his lordship over your life. Believe on him, and you will be saved. And then Yahweh will be your God as well. You will be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, and one day you will receive that eternal life, which will be perfect. So don't walk out of here still in your sin. We're going to pray, and then we're going to prepare our, our hearts and and mine's for communion, and, uh, and as I'm praying, if you could pray and receive the Lord, if you don't know him, 
Just tell them you're turning away from your sins and you're giving yourself to him. And if you do that, then talk to the person you came with. You know, let them tell you more about this or come talk to me or any of the leaders here and we'll gladly tell you more. But that being said, let's go to the Lord in prayer.